Beloved, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 12 to 16. Romans chapter 2, 12 to 16. To hear the word of the Lord from the pen of the Apostle Paul. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justi- who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing and understanding of his word. Beloved, this morning we uh, return uh, to our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Uh, We take up our study in chapter 2. You will remember uh, that the last time we were in this study, we considered the impartiality of God to all people everywhere. Here we pick up that theme once again, although now Paul calls attention to the fact that God's impartiality is reflected in the standard he uses to evaluate all of us. His revealed law, written on all our hearts and subsequently revealed to us through the mediation of his servant Moses from the heights of Mount Sinai. So I want us to look at these verses this morning under the following four headings. God's law is in the standard of judgment for all people. Mere possession of the Mosaic law saves no one. Everybody has God's law written on the hearts. And then finally, Jesus Christ judges the secrets of the heart. Let's look at the first point. God's law is the standard of judgment for all people. In Romans 2.12, Paul once again stresses the universal nature of sin. Or should I say he stresses that our sin universally yields judgment whether we are aware of the verbally expressed law of God or not. Paul says that those who sin apart from the law will be judged apart from the law, and those who have sinned under the law will be judged by that same law. To put it another way, whether you have been exposed to the law revealed through Moses to the specially chosen people of God, or you haven't, you still face divine judgment. You may be asking yourself, how can that be? I think we understand that the people of God who were the gracious recipients of God's law revealed atop Mount Sinai, and who agreed as a people to the terms and stipulations of the law, we can understand how they could be held to a coming judgment since they agreed to it. But what about the rest of the human race? That is, we Gentile. 
God can hold us accountable because the same law that he revealed in the Ten Commandments, he has engraved upon our hearts. We will have more to say about this uh, momentarily. For now, let's notice where the emphasis falls in verse 12. Paul stresses here in this verse that we all fall under God's impartial judgment and the standard that he uses to evaluate us is his own perfect, holy, and righteous character which he has revealed within the very makeup of our human nature or uh, further ratified in his law revealed to the people of God at the foot of Mount Sinai. So you see, there's two ways of knowing God in his will. One is that stamped upon the human heart, and the other revealed in the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. And they are one and the same law. Theologians uh, call the first kind of law natural or general revelation because it comes to all of us wherever and whenever we live. The other special revelation has been given to the people of God and has been given to direct us how we ought to think about God and how we ought to behave. When God inscribed his law on our hearts, our first parents were able to perfectly obey the law. Before the fall, they were perfectly able to obey God's law. But alas, we now live east of Eden and are no longer able to obey the law either as inscribed on our hearts or as revealed through his servant Moses. Paul's point is that we all, by nature, are under the condemnation of the law of God. Later, Paul will note that no one searches after God or naturally desires to be obedient to him. Paul is telling his fellow countrymen that they are not exempt from God's exacting demands. Today, we are blessed to have in our possession the whole and complete revelation of God. We are greatly blessed to be in the Christian church and to be able to worship the triune God. However, God's expectations have not changed. Even though Adam failed to obey God in Eden, God's demand for exact and entire obedience has not been softened or minimized or mitigated or withdrawn. God's law stands whether we think of it in its natural form inscribed on our hearts or more forthrightly articulated in the Ten Commandments. Honestly, beloved, have you kept God's law exactly and entirely in thought, word, and deed? And that brings us to our second point. Mere possession of the Mosaic law saves no one. Now, as we've just noted, it is a great privilege to have God's law in written form. No doubt about it. Uh, elsewhere in the letter to the Romans, Paul will say that there are many, many privileges that he had 
as a Jew in, among the Old Testament people of God. Uh, theirs were the covenant, and theirs were the, the oracles of God, and so on. So it is a privilege to have God's word in written form. So the Jews were rightly grateful to have the word of God delivered to them. They were the recipients of God's communication. In other words, God didn't play cat and mouse with them. He made himself as clear as a bell as to how he wanted his people to think about him and what kind of lifestyle he expected of his people. Today, we are in an even better position since we have the full revelation as it has reached its completion in Jesus Christ. There is nothing more God needs to say. The next time he reveals himself in such an amazing and miraculous way will be when Jesus returns to take us to live with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Now the problem in Paul's day was this. His kinsmen confused possession of God's law with their obeying it. Knowing God's word and following its direction are not the same thing. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. We can't obey God's law unless we know it. One of the problems with the church in our day is a failure of Christians to study and know the word of God. We need to be busy about studying God's word and knowing its content. But there is more to it than merely knowing God's word. Yes, the psalmist has said that he has hidden God's word in his heart. That's absolutely essential. But the psalmist goes on and says that I might not sin against you. That's the completion. I have hid your word in my heart that I might not or that I may not sin against you. God gives us the law so that we might know who he is and so that we would live in a way that adorns that word. God wants us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. God wants us to behave like his people. Paul's fellow Jews failed to understand the point or purpose for which God gave his law that God's people would be like him. God gave his word to his people because he wanted them to be perfect as he was, albeit in a finite human way. That is, God is God and we are not. But it is not enough to possess the word while we leave, on the sh while we leave it on the shelf to collect dust. Nor is it enough to study the word without carrying it out in our lives. Let us be people of the Bible in our understanding and in our lives. God the Holy Spirit has been given to us to enable us in faith to seek to obey the word. Let's be grateful for having access to God's word. And think about all the various forms that we have that, not only in print, in various editions in our own language, but we have, uh, speaking for myself, I have it on my phone, I have it on my desktop computer, my laptop, my tablet. 
Next thing, it'll be on the glasses in front of me, you know, someday, or that's probably already here, and some technology. So we have no excuse for not knowing and following the Word of God. Let's be grateful for having access to God's Word. Let's study it on a regular, consistent basis. Let's know the Bible and the God of the Bible and His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me put this another way. May we not only possess the Bible, but I pray that the Bible possesses us. That the Bible possesses us. Not that we seek to master the Bible, but that we would be mastered by the Bible. If we possess the Bible and fail to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and seek to walk after new obedience, we will stand under greater condemnation on the day of God's judgment. Has God given you a love for his word and for him? Has he given you a love for pursuing holiness and righteousness? Have you fled to Christ for refuge when you sin? May it never be said of us, that we know everything about the Bible, but don't know the Christ of the Bible, or that we have no love for holiness. In our day, there's a tendency to to pit grace against holiness. That's a sad thing, because the Apostle Paul says that uh, are we to experience grace so that we can sin all the more? No, quite the opposite. Yes, in, in some of the newer movements like the, the New Calvinism or the Young, Restless, and Reformed, there has unfortunately grown that uh, idea that uh, you either are the recipient of God's grace or, or you pr- desire to pursue holiness, but you don't do both. Well, that's not the teaching of God's Word. Let's come to the third point, that all men have the law written on their hearts. As we move further in our text for this morning, we might be tempted to think that folk who have not read the Bible or are not acquainted with the Ten Commandments uh, don't have a clue who God is and what he expects of us. Of course, we have already been exposed to Paul's comments at the end of chapter 1 that everyone knows who God is and what his moral expectations are. Paul, in verses 14 and 15 here in chapter 2, explains to his kinsmen that all of us have the law written on the heart. Now, I want to make some clarifications at this point. Okay, This is not the same sense in which the saints, that is the saved, those who've come to faith in Christ, it's not that sense in which the law is written on the heart. There's two senses. There is the sense in which the law is written on the heart and along goes with the the desire and ability to obey. That's not the sense that we're talking about here. Here, uh, now that that sense of, of, a, of the law written on the heart we see reflected in the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They both speak of the law being engraved on the heart. 
But that has in view the knowledge of God's law and the desire and the ability to keep it. That is true only of us who have been united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. That engraving on the heart is produced by the Holy Spirit taking the written word and burning it on our hearts and minds or stamping it or embossing. You get the point. There's a, an image uh, the Holy Spirit burns us on our hearts and minds in a way that is effective, uh, in a way that the natural inscription of God's law is not effectual. And I'll explain that in a little more detail. So there's two senses in which we can talk about the law of God being written on the heart. We might describe the form I've just talked about as a saving form. It is the, it is the, the way in which God has written the law on the heart of those who have trusted in Christ. But you see, there is a sense which Paul is talking about here in Romans 1 and 2, where God has written his law on the hearts and minds of all people in a natural way. And I use the word natural to simply mean in our human nature, not natural as over against supernatural, but because it is a supernatural thing that's going on. But God has written his law on the hearts and minds of all people in a natural way, by which I mean it is part of our constitution as human beings created in God's image. When we were originally created, we were able to keep this law exactly and entirely, and it was pleasing to God. But after the fall... We are no longer able to obey God's law, and we have no desire in our natural fallen state to even think about that. This so-called natural knowledge of God, what we are all created with, does not yield love of him, nor does it yield conformity to his character, nor does it yield exact and entire obedience. It can't because of the fall. Okay, so there's, there's this, we need to think in terms of God has revealed himself in our human nature, but it is not enough to, without the regeneration of the heart, it is not enough to save us. Now, Paul does suggest in these verses that there is a great irony in Gentiles obeying the law which has not been given to them in written form, is given through Moses, uh, when the Jews who have this law do not obey it. Now Paul is not suggesting that Gentiles will be accepted by God based upon their attempt, their attempt to obey the law written on their hearts. This is not the Apostle Paul's form of the God will judge us on the on the great on the on a graded curve, as as the bell curve. In other words, God does not grade us uh, dependent upon how much light we've been exposed to. And the reason is that every one of us has been exposed to this particular light. Gentiles will not be accepted by God based upon their attempt to obey the law engraved on their hearts because that same law requires exact and entire obedience in the same way that the written law does. It's the same triune God who gives the one form of the law as the other. 
Notice I said form. I used the word form. We are not dealing with two different laws, but two ways of, reve of revealing the same law. And both forms of the law require personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. So we sometimes refer to it as the three Ps. What Paul does recognize is that a Gentile may occasionally behave himself according to the law written on his heart, but it will be a hit or miss thing at best, and given our sinful state, we are not at our best. Do we obey the law naturally written on hearts and minds any more than we obey its written form in the scriptures? The Bible makes it clear that this natural knowledge of God is sufficient to condemn us on the last day and in this life when we have a fleeting experience of conscience. None of us will be able to say to God that we were clueless or in the dark about him and his will for us. Now that's not the same thing as to deny what the scriptures clearly reveal, which is that we have darkened minds. It's simply to say that on this particular score, we have no defense when we stand before God. And that brings us to our fourth and final point. God judges the secrets of the heart by Jesus Christ. Paul wraps up our text for this morning by reminding us what he told the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens is recorded by Dr. Luke in Acts 17. That is, that we will all be judged on the last day by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who will be doing the judging. And he knows our hearts. He knows them better than we know them ourselves. Jesus Christ, who wrote the natural knowledge of himself and his law on our hearts and gave Moses the law to convey to the people of God, will be the one who evaluates us on the last day when we are called to give an account of ourselves to him. In Matthew 25, 21 to 46, Jesus is the one who separates the sheep from the goats on the last day. That's quite an authority that our Lord reserves to himself. I note that because uh, many scholars always seem to miss that point. It slips by them when they love to tell us that Jesus was a good teacher but never claimed divinity, yet here in Matthew 25, 21 to 46, he claims the ultimate divine authority and consigning people to their eternal destiny. Paul is reflecting on the same reality here in Romans 2, 16. Beloved, this is terrible news for those in their natural, guilty, and corrupt condition. Paul is pressing home the fact that being Jewish or Gentile does not exempt one from the general judgment at the end of the world. All are made in God's image and therefore know him in his behavioral expectations. The old, in the old covenant, people of God had the addition of the law written down. But mere possession of this naturally endowed knowledge of God and his will 
and mere possession of the objective word of God given to his people will not exempt us from his judgment. Because of the fall and sin and misery which we experience, God's law in its natural and supernatural, in its general or special forms, does not save but stands over against us, judging us. There is good news in all of this, however, I should point out. You may be wondering what that might be. Throughout the Bible, the answer to sin and misery, the answer to the sin and misery of our fallen estate, the guilt and corruption, and the alienation that follows, and ultimately the divine wrath that falls upon us, the only, the only way out of that problem is to seek refuge in the God we seek to hide from. The only answer to the sin problem or to the wrath against sin problem is to run to the one we are tempted to hide from. In a very non-intuitive manner, salvation from sin and wrath comes as we run into the arms of our judge. But how is that possible? How is it possible that we can do that? It's possible because from the beginning, God has told us that he would provide salvation for us in all its facets. God saves us. God accepts us as righteous. He adopts us into his family. He renews us in the image of the Son. And he does this all because he has borne the penalty for his broken law himself in the person of his son. Jesus has kept the law exactly and entirely for us. He bore the brunt of the Father's wrath when he went to the cross, but the Father then raised Jesus from the dead, and when he raised Jesus, he raised us up with him. You see, Jesus became the goat which he separates from the sheep. Jesus becomes the goat which he separates from the sheep. When he was hanged on a cross and when he lay in a tomb, he was under God's curse for us. When he was raised, the curse was overturned for Jesus and for you and me. Jesus now ministers in heaven for you and me. The law which Jesus inscribed on our hearts naturally and which he revealed through Moses, he now has satisfied by his exemplary life and spotless sacrifice. Our corruption has been definitively vanquished by Christ's resurrection, and one day we will actually be free from all sin. God's answer to our failure to obey the law, whether engraved upon the heart or inscripturated in the Bible, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you look, beloved, to Christ alone? We stand, uh, in conclusion, beloved, we stand under the condemnation of a broken law. Whether we have broken the law as naturally written 
or inscribed in our constitution as human beings, which will deprive us of any and all excuse when we stand before King Jesus on the judgment day, or whether we have broken the laws written down first on stone and now sit down in Scripture, we have broken the law indeed. All of us. The only answer to the broken law is to turn to the broken and risen law keeper. The broken and risen law keeper. In Jesus, you will find complete protection from the divine penalty for sin. And so I urge you, beloved, seek refuge in Christ. Now, if you have already been following our Lord... Follow under the shadow of his wings still. If you have not yet come to him, there is still time. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures that reveal to us your Son, Jesus Christ, as the remedy for our sin. We pray your blessing upon the uh, confession and our singing and the benediction and the uh, We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.